All right, good morning, everybody. Let's find our places. Welcome back. Man, praise the Lord. What a good day already. Fantastic. We're uh, studying the book of 1 Corinthians, so as we're getting ready to get into that, you can open your Bibles, kind of get ready. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Um, as we're getting ready for today's subject, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever gotten into a debate with somebody where you just can't understand how in the world they have the opinion they have? Man, I am so glad I am not the only guy that does that. I mean, you are so sure that you're right, not just because you're arrogant, you're sure you're right because all the facts are on your side. You're like, I have no earthly idea how that person comes to that conclusion. See, for example, all current political debates. That's what we experience, isn't it? You get to the point, have you ever gotten to the point where, and forgive me for saying it this way, but I think this is the best way to say it. You ever get to the point where that other party that you're debating with, they'll say, well, your argument's just stupid. <laughs> and then you say, no, it's not, yours is stupid. <laughs> okay, so you can relate. Everybody, I'm getting the, okay, everybody can relate to this. That's because, look, it just goes on and on, and this is, this happens from time to time, right? Well, this is kind of the idea in a similar fashion. This kind of debate sort of happens in society between saved people, believers in Jesus Christ, and lost people, people who don't. And that's really what we're going to see today, and God kind of explains it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you're ready, we'll follow along. I'm going to start reading in verse number 18, and we're going to go through verse number 25. You can follow along. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? So, as we read through this, and as I was looking at this passage of Scripture, I noticed, I was, I was tracking how many times God kept repeating the usage of certain words. And the word wisdom in these eight verses appears eight times. And the word foolish, or foolishness, a version of the word foolish, appears five times. So wisdom and foolishness are the things that are compared and contrasted in this passage of Scripture. So that's the title I gave today's message. Wisdom or foolishness? So he contrasts what those things are, and it's no surprise to us that the world views it differently. It shouldn't be a surprise to us because the world is, in fact, one of the three stated enemies of the Christian, 
according to the Scriptures. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2, where we see that this world is set on a course by someone who's called the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. So this world system, this world society, the way that this world functions is set on a course, and that course is directly opposed to the will of God. So, the thing that you need to understand as we dive into this subject is, and I put this in your notes, your personal value system determines your side in this argument. Depending on what it is that is of value to you will determine how you pick your sides in the argument, right? If you value things differently, you'll argue differently. If you value them that way, you're going to see the other person's side possibly as, well, that's just foolish. It's foolish to you because you don't value that and vice versa. So in our current political climate, you either value fiscal responsibility and the sanctity of human life, or you value getting a bunch of free stuff And I don't care what happens to human life, as long as I don't have to see it with my eyes. I mean, those are value systems, right? Uh, Biblically, either you value what God says, or you value what you say. You see, that's kind of how it plays out. So, with that in mind, and before we dig into the details of these verses, let's just ask the Lord to give us His wisdom. Otherwise, we're not going to get any of this, right? So let's pray. And Heavenly Father, this is our desire and this is our request of you that you would grant unto us your wisdom. You tell us in the book of James that if we don't have it, we can ask for it and you'll give it to us freely. And that's our, that's our request. That you would come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us your mind and your heart and that we would see the truth as you see it. And I pray for anyone who's here who has yet to really understand whether or not they have eternal life that if their life were to suddenly end, that they would know for sure that they would have a home in heaven. Lord, let today be the day that they understand it. Lord, be the one to convict their hearts and show them your love through the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's just two main things we're going to look at, right? Because there's only two sides to this argument. And the first one is the world's, the worldly wisdom. That's what we're going to look at in the first three verses. And uh, it refers to it specifically in verse 19. It says, it calls it the wisdom of the wise. It calls it the wisdom of the wise. In other words, God refers to it that way, and that, by the way, is a quote from Isaiah 29 and verse 14, because it says, as it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. Um, God is really using this term in the context of the wisdom of those people in the world who think they're wise. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of those people who think they are wise. In fact, he clarifies in verse number 20, and he calls it the wisdom of this world. So the wisdom of the wise is the wisdom of this world. It is worldly wisdom. So what exactly is, what are some examples of the wisdom that this world system has to offer? And so that's what we're going to look at next. Let's take a look at human wisdom through the ages. Human wisdom through the ages. Now this comes out of a Greek society where the influence in Corinth, when Paul is doing this, right, we remember the location of Corinth, is just across that stretch of land from Athens. And in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens dealing with the philosophers. And in Acts 18, he's in Corinth. And so I pulled out some of the ancient Greek philosophies dating about 500 B.C. 
to about 300 B.C. These would have been prevalent human wisdom ideas of the day and time that Paul is writing and dealing with. And the first one is arguably the most important one that kind of represents a lot of the other stuff, a guy named Protagoras. And you have the dates of when he was alive. And the thing that he said was, basically, man is the measure of all things. And some form of what he said is really prevalent even today. Man is the measure of all things. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, that was interpreted by Plato to mean this, that there is no absolute truth, but that which the individuals deem to be the truth. Sometimes we use the term situational ethics. <laughs> it's only ethical if the situation calls for it. Although there's reason to question the extent of the interpretation of his arguments that is followed, the concept of individual relativity, this is what he talked about for Tagoras. It was revolutionary for that time and contrasted with other philosophical doctrines that claimed that the universe was based on something objective outside of human influence or perceptions. That's actually what we see Aristotle talking about, which is on your list as well. Uh, by this, Protagoras meant that each individual is the measure of how things are perceived by that individual. Therefore, things are or are not true according to how the individual perceives them. And isn't that prevalent today? Isn't that the wisdom of today where people say, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. Oh, that's Protagoras. That's 400 years before Jesus Christ. There's nothing new under the sun. Protagoras was also a proponent of agnosticism. Reportedly, in his work, which was written and called On the Gods, he wrote this. Concerning the gods, I have no means of knowing whether they exist or not, nor of what sort they may be, because of the obscurity of the subject and the brevity of human life. So he just decided, eh, you can't really know, so whatever I think, that's what goes. Plato is famous for propagating the idea that physical forms are the shadow of non-physical entities. In other words, the, the physical life is the shadow. The real life is something non-physical, somewhere in the heavenlies. Uh, Socrates is known for putting forth what's called the Socratic paradox. The only thing I know is that I know nothing. <laughs> and if you want to amen Socrates, he's probably right about that. <laughs> But, you know, listen, people back in those days, they'd hear that and they'd say, whoa, man, that's deep. <laughs> Aristotle, we mentioned. And then I just wanted to throw out, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher in the 1880s, where he made this statement that you may have heard of, where he said, God is dead and we killed him. Uh, the idea that Nietzsche was trying to put forth is, is that God really doesn't exist anyway. He's just a figment of your imagination created by man to soothe his ignorant conscience. And now that we are enlightened, we have no more need of this crutch. So we just do away with him. God is dead. Nietzsche. To which God responds, Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> so, what do you all think about that wisdom? <laughs> foolishness, isn't it? It's foolishness. The world slobbers all over themselves thinking that that's, that that's something, man. Man, they're on to something. Well, let's bring it into modern day. Higher education. Uh, universities 
are the places that you go to gain the real wisdom. Uh, universities, they're, they're all influenced by ancient Greek educational philosophical methods, so they have these societies on the campuses of most all the universities. We call them fraternities or sororities, which are designated by Greek letters, right? And supposedly that's the place you go. You really want to get the wisdom. Well, <laughs> anybody been to college? <laughs> you know what fraternities and sororities are not about wisdom. They're about burning the cells in your brain that would give you wisdom. Yeah. Hollywood almost exclusively portrays Bible believers and born-again Christians as fanatical kooks. And social stereotypes. So, little shout-out to Wednesday night uh, life groups. I was with the halftime life group this Wednesday, and, and they talked about this, so I included it today. Uh, Christians are stereotyped. They're marginalized in society, they're threatened, they're intimidated, and they're litigated against. Uh, that's, how the society, that's how this world system views you, Christian. That's how they view you. That's the wisdom of this world. That's, how, that's what this world has to offer. That reveals their value system. That's why God says anybody who's a friend of the world, well, he's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God. And he says all this kind of wisdom, God says, that's foolishness. That's foolishness. In verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the foolish. And he says in verse 20, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I want you to notice that it does not say did not God say that that's foolish? It doesn't say that he just said it. Oh, well, he said you're foolish. Well, he said you're foolish. No, it says God made them foolish. Well, how exactly did God make them foolish? How does God make their wisdom, the wisdom of this world, foolish? Well, number one, there's a couple of ways. Number one, by revealing the true wisdom. I mean, when you see the true wisdom of God as revealed in the scriptures, all this human stuff, you're like, that is nuts. That is crazy. How did I ever let myself think that that was something? It's just foolishness. God's wisdom is so much higher that in comparison, you look at this and you think, okay, these are intellectual people, but my goodness, what does it matter? Where does it get them? What does it do? When you understand the wisdom of God through the scriptures, everything else just fails in comparison to it. And only by the knowledge of the true can you be made free. You can see the false for what it really is, and that's John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth will, same word, make you free. The truth will make you free, and it will make worldly wisdom foolish. That's what the truth does. The truth does that. So how does God make their wisdom foolish? He does it by revealing his true wisdom. And he also does it, number two, by revealing their weakness. By revealing their weakness. And I don't know about you, but I frequently default to the idea, okay, that's an interesting thought. Where will it get you? Does it work? 
and human wisdom doesn't work in light of eternity, right? Because all the intellectual philosophers, right, where are they? Well, they're dead and they're in hell. That's what he says, right? Isn't that what he says in verse number 20? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Right? Where is, I mean, where are these guys at? Where's the disputer? Where are they? And then notice in verse 21. For, because, after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by their own wisdom knew not God. So their wisdom doesn't work. Their wisdom doesn't provide the path to allow them to come to know the Lord and therefore experience life eternal. The wisdom of this world is a false gospel. It's a story that will lead you down a path of hospital beds and graveyards. That's where it leads you. So you can have fun arguing and debating like those philosophers and Epicureans and the Stoics on Mars Hill in Acts 17, but at the end of the day, your body's breaking down, you're going to get sick, and this physical life's going to end one day. That's the way it works. That's what happens. I mean, think about it. They are made foolish because they did not simply believe God's message. They did not simply just surrender to the truth of God and he made them foolish. The wise of this world, they're unsaved. And those who are calling God's plan foolish, according to verse 18, it says they're perishing. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, the unsaved. Foolishness. You want a reference on perishing? Psalm 1, verse number 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but, now talking about the unrighteous, the way of the ungodly shall perish. It shall perish. Psalm 2, in verse number 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, today's a big football day, and you're bound to see a sign somewhere in the stands for John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, right? Why did he do that? That if you believe on him, you'll have everlasting life, right? That you won't, oh yeah, perish. You see, perishing is not just vanishing from the face of the earth. It's vanishing from the face of the earth, dying, oh, and going to hell. God gave his son so that you don't have to perish. Those that perish think God's wisdom is foolishness. They think the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Why would you do such a thing? So, God defines for us a little deeper. Who are these people? I call it God's parade of fools. God's parade of fools. This is a biblical definition for who qualifies. Listen, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I can't wait to see this list. You're thinking, I can't wait to go and tell somebody, boy, God said you're a fool. That is not the goal. Please don't do that. Uh, please try and be wise. Please try and actually use some discretion and try and win people to the Lord, preaching the cross, not calling them fools. Amen? However, God does define for us the characteristics. Psalm 14, verse number 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
an atheist, somebody who does not believe in God, according to God, is a fool. You, sir, you, ma'am, are a fool if you think there is no such thing as God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 22. Fools hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. So they can know that there is a God, but they're not interested. Not only, not, not only just not interested, they're mad about it. <laughs> they don't want to know. They're, you're a fool. If you could learn about God and who He is and His plan for eternal life and you reject that, God says, man, that, that's as foolish as it comes. I make this available to you. Uh, Proverbs 10 and 23. To the fool, it says, it's sport to do mischief. Uh, it's fun to do bad things. You ever meet anybody like that? I mean, we're just, I mean, this is, hey, I got an idea. Let's go do this terrible thing. It'll be fun. <laughs> it's like sport to me to go do that kind of stuff. God says, you're a fool. You're a fool. Uh, Proverbs 12 and 15, right? The fool does what's, I mean, what's right in his own eyes. It's whatever I think. That's Protagoras. It, man is the measure of all things. It's only true if I determine it's true. That's what he says. God says, oh, I'm sorry. That's foolish. It's foolish to think that everything's right only when you see it to be right. Proverbs 14, 9, the fool mocks at sin. So you talk about sin, you talk about its destruction, you talk about the wages of sin is death, you talk about the consequences of sin, you talk about righteousness and holiness, and the fool says, yeah, sure, whatever. You square, ridiculous. Goody two-shoes, Jesus freak, weirdo, get out of here. Right, They're mock, they mock it. Proverbs 18, 2, similar to hating knowledge, he has no delight in understanding, no delight whatsoever. They don't care about learning stuff that God said you're a fool. You can learn, you can know. I gave the life of my only begotten son and so that you could have my word, a perfectly preserved copy in your language sitting on your lap, you can know. And you're not interested? That's why, by the way, all men are without excuse. That's why God's judgment at the end of time is for sure a righteous judgment. A righteous judgment. Proverbs 28, 26. Fool trusts in his own heart. He sees things right in his own eyes. We kind of covered that. So who are these people that God would say are fools? They do foolishly. Well, an atheist, ignorant of available truth, not interested in learning, arrogant, confident in himself, and thinking that sin is fun. Now, by the way, these could be people with very high IQs. Uh, they may look and sound truly intelligent. They may get all the press and notoriety. But if they can't find the simple truth that God has made available to them, they're fools. They are fools. Friend, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love His Word, if you have learned from His Word, don't let those guys intimidate you. Don't let those people take their worldly wisdom and try and box you in a corner and make you feel like you're the fool. You have the true wisdom. And you can tell them God's wisdom trumps your wisdom. Oh, I don't care. They'll mock at it. They'll laugh. See, you are proving that. Thank you, sir. You proved my Bible's right. 
You don't have to back down to any of them. You don't have to have had higher education. God says in Psalm 119 that if you love my word, that he will make you understand more than your teachers, that you'll have more wisdom than the ancients. God gives you a superior mind just by virtue of connecting with him because he has a superior mind. So you love his word and, and you devour his word and it becomes your mind. Don't let them intimidate you. He says in verse 19 that I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. But it says in Proverbs 13 and verse 20, please notice this. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. He's going to destroy the wisdom of this world. And let me talk to you young people, because if you have friends who live their life according to the philosophy of this world and the wisdom of this world, and they mock at God, and they mock at sin, and they don't want to know the truth, and they make fun of you, and they just cast all these doubts and all these things to try and be cool, don't run with those people. Don't be a companion of fools. Who are your friends, y'all? I mean, just consider that. Who are your friends? Are they wise? Do they really embrace the wisdom of God? Because if you're, if you're really smart, you'll want to hang with those guys. If you're really smart, you'll want to make your friends. David said, I'm the companion of all them that fear thy law. That's who I'm a companion of. My friends are the people who love God and love God's word. That's who my friends are. Uh, you want to hang around with people who are like that because like iron sharpens iron, they will encourage you, they will help you, they will strengthen you, they will keep you from temptation and falling. But man, if you're going to go ahead and run with the worldly crowd and think you're just somehow immune to that trouble, he says the companion of the fool is going to be destroyed. And we see them, we see lives, they drop like flies People walked with God for a while, and then they disappeared. What happened to that guy? You know, if you go back and just track who they've been hanging with. We have an expression in the Albanian language that basically says, if you tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you what kind of person you are. I don't know if y'all got that in English. I don't know. But we got one of those in Albanian. It's pretty cool. But that's true, isn't it? Just tell me. Look, I don't even need to know you. I know who you hang with. That's all I need to know. He's kind of judgmental, isn't it? Well, not according to Proverbs 13. God already judged it. God already judged it. Uh, I feel like I need a bath. I feel bad. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Y'all ready to move on? Let's go to number two. Godly wisdom. Let's talk about that. That's better. Godly wisdom. In verse 21... For after that, in the wisdom of God, we saw that the world by wisdom knew not God, but in the wisdom of God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Think about that for a minute. It pleased God. What pleases God? How do we please God? Well, one way is by the foolishness of preaching. 
Look, I don't know how you read the scriptures, man. I mean, you read them how you want, okay? But I read that phrase after the description of all the foolishness of this world, and I read that phrase that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, and I detect just a hint of sarcasm. <laughs> Do you not hear that? Do you not hear that God says, oh, yeah, the foolishness of preaching. Now, the tone is totally mine, not the Lord's. Man, he's kind of giving it to him, isn't he? Foolishness of preaching. Oh, yeah, what does that do? Oh, it saves everyone that believes. That's what it does. It saves everyone that believes. How's your system working out for you? Right? That's what he's got to say. So God exalts what he calls the preaching of the cross, verse 18. What's the preaching of the cross? Well, that's obvious, right? It's the message that only the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just pictured earlier by water baptism, a picture of death, burial, going under the water, and resurrection coming back out, only that story, that's the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death on a cross, that's the only message that brings eternal salvation of the soul. That's it. That's it. The preaching of the cross. They say foolishness. It's ridiculous. That's not a deep thought. That's very narrow. That's, that's fanaticism. Really? It, really? Is it not profound that all the issues of life, and I don't care what they are, I don't care what your issues are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your culture is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your privilege is. It doesn't matter who you are and where you come from. All the issues of life can be boiled down to one simple conclusion. And that message is so simple and so effective that every man, woman, boy, and girl can simply understand and apply it to themselves personally. Man, that's, that doesn't sound foolish. That sounds profound. That sounds amazing. That, as simple as it is, yet at the same time is ridiculously deep, is it not? It covers everything. So regardless of any other issue, the story that actually secures life that lasts forever is the true wisdom. Because it works. It's the only thing that matters. And I dare you, stand at the casket of somebody and convince that family otherwise. Take your philosophical story about man is the measure of all things and the only thing I know is what I don't know and I know that I don't know. And try and comfort somebody who's suffering with that. Because all of life leads to hospital beds and graveyards. That's where it leads. And the wisdom of the ages takes all of the intricacies of life and boils them down and says, let's just, let's just take care of this. You couldn't take care of this if you wanted to. I'll do it for you. I'll send my son Jesus Christ and he'll die on the cross, live a perfect sinless life, take your sin upon him, die on the cross for you. And the fact that he did that, if you will believe that he actually did that for you, and you will confess your sins and receive him personally as your Savior, 
it takes care of it all. It doesn't mean that all your problems go away. It doesn't mean that you're rich. It doesn't mean any of those things that you may think. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you're eternally secure. You have a home in heaven. And regardless of what this life has to offer, regardless of how hard your life is, regardless of the difficulties that you go through, and I'm sure you go through them, you can patiently endure all of them because you know there's something else on the other side. Praise the Lord for that. What else really matters? What difference does it really make if I have to suffer and go through things? And by the way, y'all, we really don't suffer that much. We know we have eternal life because of what he did. Man, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the preaching of the cross, that the foolishness of preaching. That's what he does. Seriously. Man. So there's three kinds of people in the world. Verse number 22 the first of the Jews. We see from this passage right here, the Jews require a sign. The Jews require a sign. Now, of these three groups, and you have, you'll see them in your notes, you have the Jews, you have the Greeks, and you have the Christians. Uh, Two of them are unsaved. One of them, obviously, the Christians are born-again people. So the Jews are unsaved religious people, okay? Paul refers to them in Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, there's your context, right? So we've got the Jews, the Israelites. My desire for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. These are religious zealots. Ah, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish, and here's the problem, their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. They haven't submitted themselves, which you get through the preaching of the cross. <laughs> That's how you get that. And so the Jews require a sign. They're, they're religious. They're zealous for their religion. They're sincere. They're just sincerely wrong. And Paul's heart breaks for them because they're trying to figure out how to do it themselves. I dare you, again, go out in the street, interview as many people as you want, and ask them just a general question. How do you think a person gets to heaven? Let me just tell you what's going to happen. With the exception of the born-again Christians that you will meet, 99.99% of them, they're all going to say, well, if my good works outweigh my bad works, I'm sure God will probably let me in. That's the world's story. That's what they got. They're going about to establish their own righteousness and as a result are not submitting themselves unto the righteousness of God. The Jews, it says, require, this is a mistake for them, by the way, they require a sign. So what are signs? Well, signs are miracles. Sometimes we call them wonders in the Bible. Historically limited to the time in history of Moses. All the miracles around the days of Moses. Then no more miracles for a long time. Then the days of Elijah. Elijah and Elisha. Amazing outpouring of miracles in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Then no more miracles for hundreds of years. And then Jesus Christ shows up, and there's a whole bunch of miracles around Jesus Christ and the ministry of the apostles immediately after Jesus Christ. And then ever since then, no more giant outpouring of miracles all the time. In fact, the Bible even makes it clear about this times of the apostles. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle 
will rot among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So yes, in the first century, in the times of the apostles, in the times of the book of Acts, there was a lot of miracles and miraculous healings and all kinds of wonderful things going on that were supernatural in nature and in power. But what you need to understand is that they are not typical for all times. They were specific to the time of Moses, to the time of Elijah, and the time of Jesus Christ in the first century. That's the only time they were typical. They're not typical any other time. So in Mark chapter 8 and verse number 12, interestingly, even Jesus said this. Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. So there will be generations that will receive no signs. Quit seeking a sign. One of the signs that's very clearly defined in the Bible is speaking in tongues. So 1 Corinthians 14, and we will get there eventually in our study of this book. It'll probably be a year from now. But it says in verse 22, this is really hard, y'all. I mean, get your pencils out. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. (laughs) Not to them that believe, by the way, but to them that believe not. So we'll take time eventually and we'll dig into all of that and what that means. But one thing you can absolutely know, this idea of speaking in tongues is a sign, and it's for unbelievers you can know that it's not for believers it's not a gift of the spirit for christians to edify themselves that's not what it is so if anybody you know is using that they're using it inaccurately tongues are for a sign oh and comparing scripture with scripture the jews require a sign are you a jew you say well actually my family is jewish well it doesn't really matter are you a born-again christian because if you're a born-again christian you're not a jew anymore and if you're a, you were a Gentile, European, Asian, African, wherever you're from, North American, well, you're not a Gentile anymore either. You're a Christian now, right? By the way, signs can be falsified by Satan, FYI. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, and it talks about the coming of the Antichrist. Even him, this Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan. How's he going to do that? With all power and signs and lying wonders. Just be careful. Just be careful. What I want you to understand is this. Those who seek after signs, sign seekers, they struggle with faith. They struggle with their faith. Why? Because they're looking for miracles rather than just simply believing God's word. So modern charismatics who want to emphasize in these signs all the time, they would be the people that Revelation 2 and verse 9 talk about when they say that they say that they are Jews but they are not. If you are all about the signs, you're virtually saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to live like a Jew. Jews require signs. I'm looking for the signs, man. Jews require the signs. They say that they're Jews and they're not. And by the way, God says that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Those people are identified in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Jews require a sign. Uh, number two, the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks is just the Gentiles, all non-Jewish people right? They seek after wisdom. They seek after wisdom. So we've talked about that. They're looking for intellectual understanding. So the Jews might represent the unsaved religious. The Greeks would represent the unsaved intellectuals, okay? And for the most part, that's most all of us. It's the condition of most of the lost world. And you know what? There's three prevalent small g gods of this world. 
Money, pleasure, and education. And you better be careful in all of them. Money, pleasure, and education. The gods of modern society. But, it says, verse 23, but we, church, that's the third group, Christians, right? We've been born again. But we, so the church is distinct from the Jews and the Greeks. See? You see that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32, when Paul wants to give the message to everybody on the planet, he says, Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. One is not a subset of the other. They are three distinct groups from each other. Two of them are lost, and you're either a Jew or not. And the third one is a born-again Christian who is no more Jew or Gentile. That's who we are. And it says we preach Christ crucified. That's what we do. That's our job. We preach Christ crucified. It's the preaching of the cross. It's the foolishness of preaching. So somebody gets up here and makes a fool of himself every week, and you go to work and talk to your friends about Jesus, you make a fool of yourself every time you try. At least that's what they think of you, and maybe others look at you that way. I mean, think about it. In this modern day and time in which we live, to a lost person, I mean, our methodology does probably seem a little foolish. I mean, why, I mean, even as Christians, why would you guys really come to a lecture hall and sit for an hour and listen to me talk for an hour? I mean, that does sound a little weird. I mean, who, do, who goes and listens to lectures anymore in modern-day society, right? Everything's instantly on your phone, on your TV, and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's amazing the things that God says, look, this is just the way it works. This is just what we do. That's why we do it, okay? And so, while we preach Christ crucified, it says, that's what we do in verse 23, unto the Jews it's a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks it's foolishness, but not if you're saved, not if you're saved, man. I mean, it doesn't seem foolish to us, right? So the three groups. The Jews seek confirmation. That's what the signs do for them. Oh, God really is involved because a miracle happened. The Red Sea was parted. The Greeks seek education. Well, I don't know. I think it's different. But you know what the Christians seek? They seek souls. That's what they seek. They seek the souls of the Jews and the Greeks. That's what we should do. That's what you're called to do, Christian. True Christians preach Jesus Christ crucified to both the Jews and the Greeks that they might be saved. Are you a Christian? I mean, think about it. If you are, you are all called to preach. Amen? Isn't that what it says? 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, then you are the one that receives this ministry. You say, well, I don't know. I don't have a ministry in the church. Well, yes, you do. It was given to you by God. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're not practicing the ministry of reconciliation and you're not actively out seeking the souls of lost people, are you really sure you're saved? Are you? I mean, I'm not saying you have to do it to be saved. Don't get me wrong. But man, that is a sign. 
That is evidence. That is the kind of behavior that real Christians will have. And that what it says, we, church, we preach Christ crucified. We don't mess with signs, and we don't worry about human intellect and all that junk. We just preach Jesus. That's all we got to do. John 15, 16, it goes deeper than that. You've not chosen me, Jesus said, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Man, you're not just called to preach. You're ordained to do it. Go do it. Go preach Christ crucified. Give them the message of the cross. So we preach it to the Jews so that they might be saved. And how do they see it? They see it as a stumbling block. They see it like, are you kidding me? You're telling me that all I got to do is just believe and get eternal life? Shouldn't we have to do something? Aren't there like some sacrifices or something? Shouldn't we be like killing some animals or doing something? Isn't there something we should be doing? Shouldn't I have to get baptized and give money? And shouldn't I have to help old ladies across the street? And I mean, shouldn't I have to do something? It's a stumbling block to them. It's too simple. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, <laughs> but according to his mercy, he saved us. Amen. You didn't do anything. Yes, well, shouldn't we see the supernatural working of God first so that then we can be sure we're putting our faith in the right place? No, because faith is the opposite of sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It's the opposite of sight. So the simplicity that's in Christ, well, that's just too easy. So they stumble over it. And that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We preach to the Jews, we preach to the, the religious lost, and they see it as a stumbling block. It's just too simple. It can't possibly be true. Then we preach to the Greeks. We're talking about these intellectual people, right? And they just see it as foolishness. There's no logical pattern outside of just believing. I mean, think about it. In their minds, the message does seem a little strange. You're telling me that if I believe and ask for forgiveness from a dead Jewish carpenter, that was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago, that I get eternal life. Really? And they think it's foolishness. They think it's just, and because it's just so simple and so easy that a child can get it, they say, I'm too smart for that. I'm too smart for that. Just run along, kitties. I don't need that stuff. To their own demise. But, Verse 24, once one of those guys gets saved, whether Jew or Greek, oh man, it's not a problem anymore. Once they get saved, man, Christ is the power of God, which is greater than any miracle that you could witness anyway. And Christ is the wisdom of God, which is so far greater than all your intellectuals combined. If you've experienced God's forgiveness, it was through that simple message. That's how you got it. And just for a Bible study, I threw in your notes, the power of God is found in the preaching and the preaching of Christ and the cross. That's what we see in this chapter. It's found in the gospel, which is just another way of 
talking about the preaching of the cross of Christ crucified, Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is recorded in the scriptures, so the scriptures are the power of God in Matthew 22 and verse 29. And the scriptures are written by the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God. That's how you see God's real power. So here's the question for you, and we're done. Think about it. This whole debate that we started with is based on your value system. What do you value? What do you value? I mean, be honest with yourself. Do you value God's word? Or do you value your intellect, your reasoning, your opinion? Oh, you're entitled to your opinion. Absolutely. You're also entitled to go to hell if you want to. But you don't have to. You don't have to. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God as the world judges it, we've already covered that. The weakness of God, becoming a man, living as a baby, growing up in human flesh, ultimately being crucified by Roman soldiers and dying, capital punishment. The weakness of God, that's your strength, man. That's stronger than men. Listen, you know what we did today? We pleased the Lord today. We preached the message of the cross. That's what we did. You know what your turn is? Are you going to please the Lord? Are you going to respond to the message? It's up to you. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Let's pray together. You bow your heads and close your eyes.